0: Today is the first Wednesday of Black History Month, and I want to start it off with two stories that are focused on a marginalized group within our Black community, a community of people that are too often overlooked and too often the target of hate. Today, I'll be telling you the stories of two trans women who were murdered in 2020. But these two trans deaths are only the tip of the iceberg. There is an epidemic of trans murders. Last year alone, there were at least 44 transgender or gender nonconforming killings. And sadly, Courtney A'Shea and Monica Diamond were two of those people violently killed. What led to the deaths of these two women? Who are the people who killed them? And how does the world rectify the flagrant injustices committed against trans women? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's unearth the dark murders of Courtney A'Shea and Monica Diamond. Our first story is about the death of a 25-year-old trans woman on the South Side of Chicago. Her name was Courtney Ashakee. She was a part of Chicago's transgender community, and she was the head of a South Side Black-led LGBTQ Center. According to one of her close friends, Courtney spent most of her free time with her friends and mom. Although she wasn't a good cook, she was always ready to eat. According to another friend of hers, Courtney was girly. She loved to go shopping, and she would always get her nails and makeup done. Before she was killed, Courtney was working on getting her life back on track. According to her best friend, Nathaniel Porter, Courtney even thought about becoming a makeup artist. But unfortunately, Courtney's hopes and dreams were dashed on that Christmas day in Chicago. On Christmas Day, it seemed that Courtney Shea Key vanished without a trace. You see, Courtney suddenly went radio silent. This worried her friends and family. According to her friends, Courtney was always texting with her friends and posting on her Facebook profile. In her friend group, They even shared their locations. So when they suddenly didn't hear from Courtney, they began to worry. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, Courtney's location last showed her near her mother's house. This isn't necessarily strange because she typically spent the holidays with her mother. However, what happens next is mysterious. The next location she was at was at the Chicago Police Station on 111th Street. Maybe she was arrested, right? Well, one of her mentors named Bryant Crawl had the same idea, so he went to the station. But when he arrives, they tell him that the lockup showed no record of Courtney ever being there. Not wanting to jump to the worst conclusion, Bryant Crawl heads to a friend's house for Christmas dinner, then to sleep, with the hopes that Courtney will get in touch soon. But at midnight, a friend wakes him up from his sleep to alert him that Courtney was found dead. On Christmas Day at 8.35 p.m., a patrol officer found Courtney lying in the street. According to the police report, she was in the street bleeding from her head with other injuries that pointed to her being dragged by a car. The officer called for an ambulance, but Courtney was pronounced dead at the scene at 8.50 p.m. According to the Chicago Tribune, her body was found in the 900 block of East 82nd Street, around the corner from her mother's house. Could it be possible that Courtney was visiting her mother, and then on her way home, she was murdered? When police begin investigating, they end up finding a blood trail to an alley about a block away from where her body was found. In this alley, Courtney's purse and wig were found, and along with her personal effects, police found one 9mm shell casing on the ground. After Courtney's autopsy, it is concluded that she died from a gunshot wound to the head. With this discovery, the Cook County Medical Examiner's office ruled her death a homicide. According to a Chicago Tribune article about her death, police sources say that the motive is unclear and that no one has been taken into custody. However, her friends and family believe that she was killed because she was trans. They believe that her death was a hate crime. And I can see why they would come to this conclusion. According to a Time article, quote, A rising number of transgender women of color have been killed in hate-violence homicides according to the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, which is coordinated by the Anti-Violence Project, end quote. And in the same article, In 2017, 22 trans women were killed. In 2018, 26 transgender people suffered violent deaths in the U.S. In 2019, seven Black transgender women were killed. And in 2020, according to the Human Rights Campaign, 44 transgender or non-conforming people were fatally shot or killed by other violent means. And this is just what is reported. Because the HRC notes, That the data collection about the murder of transgender people is often incomplete or unreliable because some deaths will not be reported and some victims may not be identified as transgender in the media. And when it comes to the killings of Black trans women, the statistics are worse. According to Beverly Tillery, the executive director of the NYC Anti-Violence Project, Black trans women are particularly vulnerable because they face multiple kinds of discrimination. In addition, they are more likely to be homeless, live in poverty, and participate in sex work compared to their counterparts. It's clear that the killing of trans individuals is a major issue in the city of Chicago. Last year in Chicago, Selena Reyes-Hernandez was also shot to death in her home in Marquette Park. She was murdered by an 18-year-old high school student who found out that she was transgender. Apparently, this 18-year-old was charged with first-degree murder, but not charged with the hate crime despite allegedly confessing to investigators that he came back to shoot Selena upon discovering she was trans. With incidents like this occurring frequently in the trans community, it is easy to see how Courtney's friends and family are suspicious of her death. Her friends and family also begin to question how police were handling her case. Apparently, Courtney was identified as a male by Chicago police. In fact, Courtney's friend Bryant remembered seeing an alert on his phone about a person who was fatally shot. However, The alert read John Doe, so at the time, he thought nothing of it. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, Chicago police are expected to classify a victim based on their government-issued ID. If a government-issued ID cannot be found, Chicago police are required to classify the victim, unless the victim underwent post-operative gender reassignment. Chicago police do receive orders that they must refer to the pronouns in the name that an individual requests, regardless of what is on their government-issued ID. However, this is the bare minimum law enforcement is doing to ensure that trans deaths are classified humanely. By correctly classifying a trans person's identity, it can help prevent anti-transgender violence in the future. And by refusing to honor a trans person's pronouns during an investigation of their death, it is downplaying the epidemic of anti-transgender violence. How can a problem be solved when it is still hidden in the dark? Monica Diamond was a 34-year-old Black transgender woman and business owner in Charlotte, North Carolina. Monica seemed like the life of the party. She was a co-owner and founder of an event promotion company and active in the Charlotte LGBTQ and nightlife community. And if her schedule wasn't already packed, she was also the co-CEO of the International Mother of the Year pageantry system, a pageant that honors LGBTQ mothers. From my research, it is unclear what exactly Monica was up to on the day that she died. However, an article from WBTV reported that Monica was with a group of five to six people at a day's inn on East Woodlawn Road at 4 a.m. on March 18, 2020. According to this article, medics were called to the area when one of the people in the group claimed to be having shortness of breath. Apparently, Monica was this person asking for help. And once the medics arrive and they assist Monica in the back of the ambulance, an ordinary medic response turns into a murder scene. According to police, the medic is caring for Monica in the back of the ambulance when Monica asks for her friend to come assist her. However, the medic denies Monica's friend, Prentice Bess, entry into the ambulance. After this encounter, police say that Prentice Bess left. But soon after leaving, Prentice returns, and this time, he doesn't take no for an answer. When he comes back to the ambulance where Monica is being treated, he shoots Monica several times. At this point, no medics or police were caught in the crossfire, but Monica was there, bleeding out, dying from multiple gunshot wounds. Although the medic tried to keep Monica alive, she ended up dying at the scene, right there in the ambulance. Prentice Bess was immediately taken into custody. Unfortunately, there's not a lot out there about this case, this could be because the case is relatively new, or it could be because police just don't want to release any information. Although this case seems shut and closed, I'm left with so many questions. Like, what was the killer's motive? What was Monica doing at that day's inn? Also, why did Monica ask for her killer to join her in the ambulance? Were there any signs that Prentice Bess, a supposed friend of Monica, was intending to kill her? Why did Monica's friend turn on her? There's just still so much that is unclear about the circumstances of Monica's murder. But one thing that is clear is that just like many other Black murder victims, the details of her case are sparse. And like many other cases with Black murder victims at the center, Monica's story just becomes another statistic. When I'm researching cases, I'm often looking for the moment when things went wrong. When that person went missing or when that person was killed. But before all of this, I'm also looking for the story. The story of who they were before everything went horribly wrong. And too often, I'm disappointed by my research. Cases like Maura Murray or Madeline McCann get media attention. Countless articles written about their lives before they went missing. Articles meant to humanize them. The media becomes fully immersed in missing white girl syndrome. The truth is that there's nothing wrong with telling someone's story and writing article after article about their case, because undoubtedly this is a great way to get the victim's story out there and get the case solved. But another truth is that when only one demographic receives this attention, this care, and this compassion, it's simply unfair and it's systematically contributing to unsolved cases of missing and murdered black people. Courtney Key and Monica Diamond deserve the same attention, the same care, and the same compassion. And so do other missing and murdered Black people. If anyone listening has any additional information about Monica Diamond's murder, you can call Homicide Detectives at 704-432-TIPS. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, You can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the LCL pod for any podcast updates. Remember, sharing is caring, so make sure to share this podcast and also leave a review. It helps a lot. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes. This episode was written and hosted by Nisa Henderson, and it was produced by Channing Tapp and Nisa Henderson.